This is Subversive, a podcast hosted by me, Alex Kashuta, to highlight hidden voices, uncommon perspectives, and our era's true intellectual elite, the anonymous poster. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so on Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. Thank you and enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Catgirl Kulak. Um, he is the writer of a very interesting Substack called Anarchonomicon, uh, and he is also a frequent guest on the Bailey podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here, Alex. Uh, I'm really glad to have you on. I mean, you are um, kind of a, a recent addition to the space, a, a breakout star in many ways. Uh, you've been retweeted by um, a lot of prominent people uh, like Jordan Peterson and uh, Scott Adams. And yeah, you're, you're definitely a, a, a sensation. I mean, um, yeah, tell me a little bit about what what is it about, I mean, the so-called wider dissident rights space that made it so interesting to you and that made you want to be uh, a participant? Uh, basically, it's the only space that ideas are actually happening. Um, so if you go to a university right now, you're just not encountering new ideas. Like none of the people you actually interact with are generating ideas. Uh, the university is a, right now is a space where you can spend 10 years and dedicate, dedicate your entire career to becoming the person who writes articles circling around something that, that Hobbes or Spinoza or, or some Victorian writer said but it will never produce someone on the level of those writers. A philosophy force course is where your, your aspirations to be a philosopher go to die. So it's very interesting that in the distant right space, you get people who, who are just going at it 100% are producing ideas, are falling flat on their face, producing ideas, but are actually trying, are actually pushing things forward, are developing aesthetics that really haven't been seen before. Um, the intersection of something is stuff as varied as uh, traditional Catholicism or Nietzschean vitalism or, um, or American romanticism, all these different trends intersecting in odd ways. And Sturgeon's Law, most of it's crap. Most of it doesn't go anywhere. But stuff can actually come out of that, whereas left-wing spaces, um, the university, these institutions are basically dead. It's all pretty much everyone, as far as I can remember, spent their entire career cowering, kind of hoping that if they just keep their head down long enough, they'll get tenure, and then they won't have to say anything again. And they'll be safe for the rest of their career. And it's just, our institutions are hopeless spaces in a lot of ways. And of course, no one coming out of the university system or or the media system or the publishing system at all measures up to figures that existed just 20 years ago. It's it's really dramatic how how lively the online space is, how lively Twitter nons are versus how completely dead and cowering carrying some of the most august and creative institutions are that were creative in august 20 years ago 
Yeah, you had a really um, interesting piece on your Substack about kind of the the media side of this and the fact that it's it's pretty much indisputable that kind of legacy media institutions are on on their uh, you know their deathbed. Um, and I mean, you kind of lay out an argument there about um, why this is happening. And I guess you know the 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 reverse of this is why a lot of these spaces, this kind of like, you know, darker anonymous spaces are, or where the action happens because it become impossible for it to happen where, I don't know, not necessarily where it used to happen because, you know, part of your argument is also that it's always kind of been this way, but it's, it's much more visible now because maybe you have a bit of contrast. But I mean, uh, lay that out a little bit. I mean, what, why is legacy media dying? So legacy media... It's really dramatic, especially in the case of Canada, because it's actually state funded. But in Canada, as recently as 2015, you had um, you had these legacy institutions and media that actually on the face of it were doing their job. Like I remember being a kid in in 2014, 2015 and actually being impressed at how much news was breaking on Canadian talk shows. So um, there was this great figure, Steve Pakin, who did um, kind of the main NPR-style talk show, hour-long discussion. Basically, what you'd think like a a Bill Maher-style talk show would be in the States or kind of edging into what podcasts are now. But um, in 2008, 2015, he'd have figures like Jordan Peterson on or... or, um, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Peter Hitchens. He had had um, figure that had a huge influence on me as a kid. Niall Ferguson, the Harvard historian, not the epidemiologist. Um, all these interesting figures that are fairly influential on the American American right and just in pop culture in general. And and his interviews with them would get close to six million views sometimes in in after airing YouTube views, like serious viral stuff. Like if you were to point to one figure that's like, this person has made the transition from television to the internet flawlessly, it would be Steve Pakin and the agenda. And right now you can go on the agenda.com on the agenda's website or go to their YouTube channel and they're getting hundreds low thousands of views per video like um like i actually did the math at one point and i'm getting more more views and hits on my sub stack than they're getting on their t- entire show which is being subsidized to the tune of millions of dollars a year by the canadian government and the question is well why is this why did they why did they die they had it they had it in the palm of their hands they were interviewing jordan peterson right on right in 2015, as all this was taking off? And the answer is, well, they died died out. They allowed their platform to die. They purposely killed it because they were being paid to, because the government was subsidizing them. So, so there's this... So on the face of it, you'd think, well, why would Justin Trudeau be spending millions of dollars on, on state-funded propaganda that no one's watching. You know, you think even if you're a propagandist, you want people to at least see the propaganda. And basically what I concluded is um, is the BBC, the CBC, 
NPR, all the PBS, all these state funded funded media media sites, all these state funded media platforms, channels, etc. They're purposely producing crap because they're being being paid to produce it and they're being paid to produce it so they won't produce the stories that are actually interesting. If you think of what actually drives viewership, what actually drives interest, what people are actually willing to sit down for three hours and engage with and spend good money to engage with in a lot of cases, it's Joe Rogan. People, people are very interested in intellectual discussion. They're very interested in heterodoxy. They're very interested in just having a weirdo like Jordan Peterson, who <laughs> I don't think anyone has thought anything he's thought beforehand. And I don't think anyone's thought what he thought afterwards. I don't think, I think it's actually possible to come away from Jordan Peterson discussion and, and know what he was trying to say in detail or actually know what what weird young analysis he has is, but it's, it's fascinating until you get bored of it, bored of it, or have had enough of them. Like, like that's a person that, that if you're encountering him for the first time, it's very easy to spend just 10 hours trying to get the gist of what he's after. And basically what we saw after Trump was um, all the mainline legacy institutions panicked and said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to engage with this. We're not going to replicate this process. So, and actually you can see them, them having this discussion in 2016, 2017, 2018, where they're explicitly blaming their earlier coverage and chasing of ratings for why 2016 happened. Um, there's this extraordinary episode in 2018 where, um, the Monk debates this formerly august institution that's held in Toronto is, is a debate series that's held every year, pretty much. And this would get maybe 10 million views. Views once you add in listens and everything. It would air on NPR, it would air on CBC, it would air on BBC. See, real international reach and event, and it was always meant to be an event. It was meant to be this great intellectual engagement. I think it actually got start in kind of the new atheism era when when all our institutions were like, yeah, intellectual debate, go, go, tear down these old Christian institutions. But it really built up this idea of of debate in the public sphere. And this was one of the best examples of it, one of the the best real platforms you had it going. And in 2018 they had a debate between David Frum, former George W. Bush speechwriter and now editor at The Atlantic, and Steve Bannon, uh, Trump advisor and editor of Breitbart. And the debate was populism. Populism. And of course, David Frum argued that populism will not define the era. And, and Steve Bannon argued that it would. It was just a question of whether it was going to be Trumpian style populism or Bernie Sanders style populism. And, and during this debate, of course, there were protests, there were people trying to cancel it. The fire alarm was pulled, as far as I can remember. People were protesting outside. Ladies jumped up and shouted during the debate and had to be dragged, dragged out. You can see this entire mode of discussion around 
around we need to deplatform these people. These ideas can't be allowed to be discussed. The rubes will latch onto them. To them, open debate is something that leads to Hitler. You know, if we want to defend liberal democracy, we can't allow liberalism or democracy. So what you see with legacy media is this massive pulling back. And the dramatic thing has been that even as their audiences have disappeared, so the monk debate, no one really watched it after 2018. They censored their own results. They did in the Oxford style where, where people vote at the start and then they vote at the end. And originally they reported that Steve Bannon had won massively, that um, he had actually managed to sway something like 30% of the audience from supporting Frum's position to supporting him, which if you watch the debate, isn't actually that absurd just because David Frum, like the entire debate refused to engage with points. It was very canned ad hominems, you bad person. Whereas Bannon, uh, he really framed the question well saying, well, it's going to be populism. It might not be my populism. It might be Bernie Sanders, but it's going to be some version of populism. So basically, if you hated the 2008 bailouts and you hated the Iraq war, you're going to support Bannon. Bannon. And it was very clever how he did it. It was very rhetorically skilled, and they reported that he had won. Five minutes later, they put out a tweet. No, 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 uh, that's not what happened. There was an error in, there was an error in the um, reporting mechanism. Um, it was a tie. The votes didn't change. And, of course, it's completely absurd. absurd. And the Monk debates have not been very interesting at all since. I think, I think there was something recently with Stephen, Stephen Fry and Jordan, Jordan Peterson. They were debating something, but it was... It was a shell of its former self, and basically all the institutions we had that that had some august quality that obviously were tied into to the system in some way. Noam Chomsky characterized it as manufacturing dissent. Obviously, they pay, played a role in this crazy, but no crazier. Um, we'll only put these people on if they're visibly losing, and we won't air the interview or we'll heavily edit it if, like, Jared. Taylor looks like he wins in an interview. Like um, uh, the my favorite example of of kind of old media is like Jerry Springer would invite racists on his show, but he'd make sure it was edited in such a way that that looked like they lost and the audience was turning on them. He'd never invite someone that might get the audience turning about to them, or he'd pick the audience so that it was incredibly kind of disproportionately representative of one demographic or another. So like if someone's being sexist, you'll notice notice that 80% of the audience are women. Or if if someone's saying something racist, racist also only 50% of the audience is black as opposed to kind of a natural rate. But but legacy media, at least before before 2015, they're still trying to represent themselves as having the debate. They want to stack the deck but they wanted it to be represented. Uh, 2022, the trucker convoy hits Canada. And of course, Steve Pakin, he's one of the most prominent interviewers in Canada, one of the most prominent topic shows. Not a single member representative of the truckers is ever brought on, not a single conservative MP. And we had major conservative MPs openly supporting the truckers. One of their most vocal supporter 
supporters. Um, Maxime Bernier is the head of the People's Party of Canada. He supported them from the start. And Pierre Polyevre was the uh, MP from the Conservative Party. The, in, the trucker point convoy climaxed with uh, his normal boss, Aaron O'Toole, being kicked out as leader of the party. And within six months, Pierre Polyev was the was the leader of the Conservative Party. So you had had two leaders of of political parties. Well, one leader and one very prominent MP who would become leader, both endorsing it. Neither of them were invited on uh, the agenda to discuss it. No representative from the convoy. The closest they got was they had a representative of uh, the Canadian Civil Liberties Institute who took great pains to distance herself from the convoy at all and said, well, obviously they're horrible. We need to denounce them, but we should be careful that maybe perhaps we don't infringe the right to protest, which obviously this was a matter of protest rights. The greatest crime they committed in terms of actual impositions on the city of Ottawa was illegal parking. Parking. It was a great example of probably one of the most peaceful protests in history for its scale and and the amount of news coverage it got. And of course, no one was invited on the show to discuss that. No one watched the episodes. You can look these up online. They have maybe 10,000 views. But you think just eight years before, Jordan Peterson had been making a stink about um, about new trans speech laws in Ontario that that you could lose your job or be be jailed potentially for misgendering. And he was making a huge statement and he was invited on the agenda then and got eight million views. All suddenly it's like, oh Trude, Trudeau's money was very well spent. He could have had a huge national scandal that probably would have brought down his government. And instead he had he had it buried. There was no coverage. Uh everyone who's online followed it very closely, but my grandmother heard nothing about it, or if she heard, oh, there's people causing a ruckus. And anyone who is not on Twitter, not online, is engaging through cable news or legacy media, they all still largely seem to think that they're getting 2008 or um, 2015 news coverage, that uh, that they're actually even hearing what the stories are, which just isn't the case. And that seems to have been the real value of this from, from the perspective of CBC, BBC, TVO, NPR, PBS, all the state-funded funded broadcasters. And then you look, well, what about the private, private news providers? You know, completely different incentive structure. Shouldn't it change? And the answer is largely no. So in Canada, especially, there are no pr- private broadcasters. Uh, every newspaper, every TV ch- TV channel is funded to some extent, extent if not or greater, by the government. Um, even prominent prominent podcasts like Canada Land, if you're donated that podcast, they receive massive amounts of state subs- subsidies, and which should be obvious since they're carried on the CBC at points, but. Um, Aside from like Rebel, which has its own 
own problems, but is loyal to another government that isn't isn't the Canadian government and and a few others that are really eccentric. Um, there's a few like Fel, uh, the Epoch Times is big here, and they're they're obviously captured by the Falun Gong and kind of kind of that wing of um, Chinese political life, but. But if you aren't talking about China, they're actually pretty good for covering most things. But um, so that's a state of media in most countries that aren't the U.S. Within the U.S., you look at um, who's funding CNN, who's funding funding Fox, who's funding MSNBC. And you watch an hour of MSNBC, you'll see ads for literal literal defense contractors. Like I, I almost fell out of my seat when I saw it. Um, I was saying they're watching MSNBC. All suddenly, an ad comes on for Raytheon, and of course, Raytheon offers no product whatsoever that any human being watching a show can buy. Like the only one who can buy anything from Raytheon, you either have to be a Saudi prince or you have to be a congressman looking to to buy some Hellfire missiles. But they're advertising on on MSNBC as if they have a product to sell, as if as if you could go to the store and get them as easily as you could get adult diapers or any of the other products they offer. And and obviously what they're doing is the ad for Raytheon, that's not the ad for Raytheon. The ad for Raytheon is what comes on after the ad for Raytheon, which is all the news coverage. MSNBC is the center for the American left. It's the most prominent explicitly left-wing news channel and in a decade msnbc has not covered anything that was anti-war uh you can watch msnbc for hours you will not see like a a noam chomsky type figure you will not see um you'll not see green party representatives you'll not see representatives of the old left kind of who opposed the draft you will not see documentaries about the old left opposing the draft by and large because because it's not being paid for by its organic advertisement it's being paid for by the companies that are purchasing the ads and aren't really advertising uh this is i have a theory that this is why um why um pharmaceutical companies are so powerful right now um basically they have a massive advantage over every other industry in america in terms of accumulating political power, because when they advertise on on CNN or Fox or or MSNBC, well, the natural audience for those are the incredibly old who still watch TV. So even if you know the return on an advertisement for for this specific medical brand or um, for Oh, what's the big Pfizer one? The the dick medication. Um, Viagra. Viagra. Even if an ad for Viagra, you know, a dollar of ad spend on Viagra only generates, you know, 30 cents worth of profit from sales. Well, that's a massive discount on your political advertisement if you're getting 30% of it back. So that, I I suspect that's why, why Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, uh, AstraZeneca a little, although they didn't exist quite before the pandemic, although they're massive subsidiary 
of all the others. They're all incestuously inter- interconnected. That's my theory of why they had so much political power at the moment of the pandemic was because they could advertise and only lose 20 to 30, 30 cents on the dollar. Whereas, whereas if you're a defense contractor, it's a complete loss. Like you're going to actually generate any organic sales from advertising Raytheon on CNN. You're just explicitly buying political power. Yeah. That's a that's a very strange thing because I I guess it's um essentially um lobbying for positive vibes from the population in general because I guess people have a certain idea about what Raytheon is but I guess if you tell them about diversity well, and inclusion at Raytheon they probably maybe soften a bit on the on the well, concept. My, my thinking isn't that that actually has any effect. Like the actual ad for Raytheon, you could replace it with blank air and it would do do nothing except remove the fig leaf. The real thing Raytheon or Pfizer is buying is the fact that no media company is going to run scandalous news about um, the companies that are advertising for it. So, so Steve Pakin isn't going to cover a story, story that's going to hurt Justin Trudeau when Justin Trudeau is paying for his entire show. Uh, MSNBC is going to run a story against the military industrial complex when the military industrial complex is paying for their entire entire show. So it's kind of, if you want to model um, modern media, it's basically a blackmail ring that runs out of kind of their legacy prestige. No one's actually watching it. Uh, They aren't actually communicating much of anything, but they're getting paid massive amounts of money because they could go back and be respectable and like actually start covering stories at some point if they stop getting paid off. Like um, if funding wasn't cut entirely to, to Canadian public broadcasters and Steve Pagan had to compete in the open, he'd start doing immediately what Joe Rogan does and invite, invite every figure from everywhere on to get as many eyeballs as possible. And that would be very threatening to the Canadian regime. So all this money is essentially a payoff to not cover the news, to not be be an actual news personality. And of course, because these figures all existed in the era before before modern in- internet communications, before social media, before this weird tw- post-2016 dynamic, they all have incredible amounts of accumulated prestige that that's incredibly potent in our culture and could be very damaging to the regime. If suddenly, if suddenly say Anderson Cooper was interviewing, viewing Steve Bannon or the QAnon shaman and giving him tons of good coverage, which like you could imagine if Anderson Cooper was like go and had, had nothing he could possibly do to get back in the graces of the regime. Well, what can he do with his brand neck recognition? That's what he'd do. Like um, that's what that's what um, Joe Rogan's doing. That's what every every online personality does. It's who's the most interesting voice in the room. Let's go talk talk to them. So all these prestige legacy figures could do that, and probably would be doing that in any healthy media environment. But of course, they're being paid off because they still have huge amounts of prestige that were generated in the two thousands and before. For for shows that no longer exist, and of course, 
you know, my grandmother, um, all the grandmothers in Canada, all the people over 70 who, who drive the vote naturally drive political policy. They won't believe anything unless a newscaster they've known since 2005 tells them something. So like it, my grandmother, if you try to talk to her about the truck convoy or something, she'll say, well, I didn't hear that on the news. And like that attitude is incredibly prevalent amongst the elder, elderly that no, this is how you get information. And of course, new legacy media has been telling them for about a decade that you can't trust what you read on, online. Of course, they're constantly being bombarded with scare stories about online scammers and and stuff there after them that that if they start believing something that contradicts the news online, they're about five steps from losing their social security number. Yeah. But I mean, just by definition, this uh, situation is not sustainable. I mean, don't know how old your grandmother is, but I mean, this is maybe a, a 10 year project. Um, I'd say like closer to five. Like yeah. um, this dynamic, it will really be, dramatic to look back in the history books that just just wow covid happened right before that that um realistically like um the silent generation generation are declining massively like they're gonna hit maybe one tenth of their total numbers still alive within five years the boomers huge chunks of them are going in the next five ten years and it'll basically and legacy media just won't be there, or and a massive portion of those that will be remaining will be senile, and it won't even have much of an effect on on them. So there's there's kind of an interesting question if you're if you're a prominent legacy media figure, at what point do you quick make a dive for the exit before you can go down with the ship? At what point do you all suddenly say, no, 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 I was secretly based the whole time? and write memoirs upon memoirs about how corrupt CNN and is to try and have a, some brand recognition and career after CNN goes down. But yeah, these institutions, because they run off of consensus, the val- the value of CNN is you turn it on and you know exactly what, what all the news channels are saying. You know what the regime wants you to, to believe. You know what the consensus is. As soon as there isn't a consensus, as soon as that mechanism is so weak and anyone could be thinking or believing anything, a lot of the impetus to tune in at all is kind of kind of gone, and most of the the propaganda power of it is gone. If you can buy off five news stations and all the news stations are saying what you want, and that's eighty percent of the voice in the room, that's incredibly powerful, even if if anyone with any brain knows they should be weighing the 20% more because, you know, you're controlling all the people who aren't paying attention. But if that shrinks down from 80% to 60% to 40% to 20%, all suddenly, while the news stations are saying this, that doesn't mean a whole lot. And really, really, um, when consensus institutions go when big big systems of collective belief go they go all at once uh 
the model would be like, a, uh, what's it? The the emperor with no clothes effect, where um, enough people are in a room, all suddenly all suddenly see each other believing it at once, then no one believes it. You see this in with market prices. You see this with armies that are in the midst of battle. Then they see just enough people retreating that all suddenly everyone in the army is re- retreating. Retreating. There's um. There's a massive function of social consensus that that drives politics, that drives markets, that drives drives militaries, that drives most social functionality. It drives everything down to you know who's the queen bee in your social circle. Circle that at some point that's just going to flip, flip, and it, I expect it will be quite dramatic the day the day it becomes obvious no one's listening to CNN. And or all this state-run propaganda is just not believed, and even even the um, the think tankerati and the the government bureaucrats like are openly not not buying the official story. Sorry that we kind of we witnessed it happen in the Soviet Union, obviously, where um, uh, there was a great moment with Ceausescu where he was giving his his final speech and his party loyalists, the group he had gathered in the room with him to give the speech started booing, booing that it had gotten to that point where even they, they didn't adore, adore him. It could very quickly get close to that. I, there's enough partisanship that it wouldn't, it certainly wouldn't be just everyone turning against the system and the world wakes up from history. It would be more, the consensus falls apart and now there's only kind of, left-wing blue-haired Jenner goblins and only, you know, online right-wing Twitter tr- Twitter trolls that the all all the legacy institutions just aren't there and we're in and we're in the weird weird blend of anime and and 19th century political ideologies that the internet has been building up for us. Yeah, it's a it's a strange thing and it, it does seem like we're we're definitely headed that way, at least, you know, maybe from my perspective, because I'm in I'm in these spaces a lot. Um and it's uh it, it's strange to imagine just politically what that would look like because um we we have had the illusion of a certain consensus for a long time and uh you know even if you had you know inner party auto party dynamics and you know it was essentially just one cabal of people running things at all times um there was that that consensus that kind of kept a little bit of a lid on potential i don't know outbreaks of 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 civil disobedience but now things are pretty um pretty clearly fractured down maybe not a middle, maybe even, you know, more than two sides because there's lots of infighting in, in, in both sides. There's obviously, you know, a clear vision of the enemy, but still it's not necessarily like, you know, the right has any consensus. There's a lot of layers to it. So, I mean, it's it's going to be interesting in the next, uh, you know, five years. Probably, you know, everyone's looking to the U.S. because that's where all of this stuff has started early. It started more powerfully. I mean, Trump kind of set off uh, all of these dynamics, but it's happening everywhere else in the world as well. I mean, you know, you could also argue that, you know, even even the Ukraine war is, is uh, partly something that's been uh, triggered by by dynamics similar to these. So, yeah, yeah I mean... The Ukraine war is a bizarre, bizarre microcosm because, 
because it kind of betrays just how absurd the partisan binary has become. At um, at one point, theoretically, it kind of made sense that um, that there were socialists internationally and there were conservatives internationally. And in the domestic politic realm, obviously, you had Whigs, you had progressives, you had conservatives, and they all kind of lined up. So in the 1930s, you could, you could look at who someone backs in abstractly and say the um, Spanish Civil War, and you basically knew which party they supported support domestically in the U.S. or Canada. Uh, there was this ideological division. You look at Ukraine, and basically nothing there is predictable from it. So like, you look at the Russian side, and it's like, oh, these neo-Soviets eh, who like will wave the the red flag and and like even it's it's simplistic propaganda to say that's what Putin wants, but there are certainly factions within Russian society that at least have a nostalgia or nationalism for the old Soviet Union, and they're paired up with with factions of Chechens who were at war with Russian society 20 years ago and now are a de facto mercenary group, but they're all backed by the descendants of the hard anti-communists in the U.S. who who see Ukraine as an extension of the liberal progressive empire. So these ex-anti-communists like Pat Buchanan will praise Putin and these fighters who are literally waving the Soviet red flag. And meanwhile, you have these um, these genderqueer Antifa types waving the flags with the insignia on the inside of Azov Battalion that's explicitly neo-Nazi. And you, and you see very quickly just how, how ideologically fractured the world is and how artificial um, the kind of binary division is. That has to be a binary because American politics is a binary and the world is a colony of the of America. So everything eventually has to come down to which side of the American empire do you back? But as soon as that goes away, uh, probably the world fractures into hundreds of pieces. I have this running, running theory that I keep trying to push and I, and no one quite buys it. But um, basically the theory is that cycles of history are driven by, um, by who technology empowers. So you can look at the 19th century and say that's a great centralizing era. You know, history was defined by who could conscript the most men and organize them and deploy them and have a massive organizational infrastructure to deliver messages between them. That the complexity of communication, the difficulty of that made, made vast centralized empires, the French state, also, only everything just becomes a suburb of Paris in France. Also, only Germany that has not been united once in its history gets united. Italy, which hasn't been united since the fall of Rome, also only it gets united. It's this massive centralizing era, and it's driven by the fact that body count is what matters, size is what matters. You can have this great technological leap by just throwing more people, more bodies at a, at a problem, and also only. Actually, you can have a Pony Express that's delivering the messages fairly consistently, or you can, or you can have thousands of people managing a telegraph line, and that's 
powerful. But you look at areas that are incredibly decentralized. In a lot of ways, on paper, they look a lot more technologically complex in terms of what the actual individuals are doing. So, so a musketeer in not a musketeer, a musketman in in the 18th century actually looks pretty simple. He has a cloth outfit, he has a rifle, and he has some kit for cooking. You know, aside from the riflery, which is fairly the musket itself, most of them weren't even rifle, which is fairly simple. It's all pretty basic, pretty cheap. Whereas you look at, say, the early Renaissance or or the medieval knights, these are incredibly capital and and skill intensive endeavors. You basically have to train your entire life to be a medieval knight. Uh, you have to be skilled in a horse. You have to be skilled with weapons. You have to have something close to a hundred times the average person's annual income in wealth on your person to make it all work. Like the closest analogy would be the cost of a, a modern fighter jet. And these areas were incredibly, incredibly decentralized. You can look at a map of um, the Holy Roman Empire and there's hundreds, if not thousands of individual polities. And the great distinction between these areas seems to be one is incredibly organization intensive and one is incredibly capital and skill intensive. And if you look at the course of history just over the past hundred years, years from the very start, stardom just before World War I to today, warfare, communications, communications um, organization, everything has become incredibly capital and skill intensive. Uh, social media is slightly an exception. It's become incredibly skill intensive, but the actual capital cost for the individual has become come down. But to actually do it really well, like to to be one of these people who can produce a video and have six million views on it and have it be polished as hell, that takes you know. That's a four-year video video course that a lot of those people get to have the anim- animation and whatnot. Like um, just the simple stuff for like a map or something that Vox would put out. And you can see immediately in these legacy in- media institutions that were online. Um, so like Vox, all their skilled people are now in- independent because they can make vastly more money producing content of that quality on their own than they can doing it for Vox. And this replicates across all levels. So so my estimation is basically the state of the world right now, how centralized it is under one hegemon, is really an accident of history. That really the US, US because it won history, it beat, it won World War I, and then it outlasted the, sorry, won World War won one world or two, and then it outlasted the Soviet Union. The fact that that the world is centralized under the U.S. empire is really artificial. And if you look at the U.S. US budget or what has to be done to maintain that hegemony in terms of, of raw expense, in terms of the amount of training you have to do, in terms of producing a new $10 million fire pilot like every 10 years, for each fighter jet, because of course, you know, they retire and then all of a sudden you have to train someone up that's 
that's new and get them all the flight hours. It's remarkably unsustainable, the idea that we could have this level of centralization with this type of technology. If you have red coats and it's all driven by body body count, you know, big Napoleonic empires make sense. Whereas in the modern era, it's really remarkable that that things haven't broken down to to a Holy Roman Empire style imp- indecipherable web of overlapping jurisdiction. Uh, yeah, of course, there's still time. Yeah, if you read like Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash or a lot of or a lot of cyberpunk fiction, this is actually what they were predicting in the 80s and 90s. This was kind of the Gibsonian thesis that as technology expands and complicates that centralized government just becomes kind of impossible. It becomes this world of hackers and weirdos, weirdos pursuing things for their own, for their own ends and their own reasons. And largely that, that hasn't happened. And it's kind of mysterious that it hasn't, hasn't in Peter Thiel. um, His book is zero to one. He theorized that actually we've been incredibly technologically stagnant. That um, if you look at if you look at the advancement in the world of computers, which is, and especially in the world of software, which is incredibly unregulated, theoretically kind of impossible to regulate. You can't really stop someone from typing up code on their laptop. Uh, within that realm, we've advanced leaps and bounds, like. Like depending on your theory of AI, we're that close to breaking reality. It's been advancing so fast. Whereas if you look at say the world of atoms, like the world of automotive, motive, or the world of um, rocketry, or the world of home home cooking or home design, like the accoutrements of the house, really very little has changed since the fifties. There's been kind of quality and sustainability improvements um your car doesn't break down as fast but then it's not as cheap a unit to buy very few 16 year olds get new cars anymore that within the world of atoms progress has kind of been regulated out of existence uh i i got into arguments with some friends friends of mine my argument was um well the flying car has been invented it was invented in 1914 you know that was the year we started treating training teenagers to fly Fly small planes that would fit in a fit in a large garage, and we trained these teenagers so well that by seventeen they could fly around and shoot each other while doing doing it. And yet, of course, no one owns a personal flying machine in in their garage, despite this being a technology that was available in nineteen sixteen. And honestly, the average motorcycle shop could probably make one. So, so this was Thiel's argument that that technologically we've been been going backwards, kind of regulating it out, out of existence. And there's kind of an interesting question as to well, what will win out in the end, kind of our regulatory cowardice or the inevitability of these technological advances, and and kind of that's why. 
Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but you you had a really good um, thread as well on on one of the proposed alternatives to uh, the USA as a global hegemon and uh, also a country that is known for less regulation on many of the of the areas that, um, you know, people complain about in the U.S. I mean, they're they're very uh, kind of tech intensive. They put a lot of government money into uh, development of, of of new things, um, especially in biotech, it's you know, all sorts of things that are very much beyond the pale in the U.S. or be now being done actually in in uh, in China. So, um, but your argument in this thread was that China itself is not as healthy and not in, in such a good state as as people imagine, and maybe not the the prime contender for for a global hegemon. So, yeah, China. China is in a very deceptively weak position. Every every kind of four years, people say, oh, it's going to overtake the U.S. in terms of GDP in the next four years, and it never happens. And a big part of the reason of that is China is fighting this incredibly uphill battle against its own demographics. So um, the one-child policy, China has some of the starkest population decline. It's already started declining, depending on who you ask. But in terms of next hundred years, its population is looking at being cut in half, which which doesn't sound too bad if you're unfamiliar with demographics. Well, that's still seven hundred million and more space. You know, I I want to play pay res, less in rent, but um, because people now spend the last third, the last half of their life life retired or unproductive you need vast amounts of young people to support them and that just doesn't exist so so what you're seeing in large sections of china is old people all suddenly you reach the peak of career your career and then instead of retiring you just kind of descend until there are large parts of china where you find old people kind of picking through garbage to find bottles and stuff that they can sell for recycling it's in- incredibly sad, but the the big thing is that industries, industries, and a lot of the functions of civilization that depend on having young young people, you know, people in the 18, 20, 25, 30, people who are ambitious, who have something to gain, gain, who are willing to put in, you know, in sometimes extraordinary hours to try and get get ahead or get some somewhere in life they're just just running out of them them and there's a question of automation but so far nowhere's actually managed to keep an economy growing while the population has been declining japan is vastly richer than china vastly more able to support its elderly population and they've been stagnant for three decades their lost decade became became the lost quarter century and now it's looking like the lost half century century it could become. So China obviously has been in a much worse position. And as early as 2008, 2012, um, Niall Ferguson had a great documentary to this effect, um, China, Triumph and Turmoil. It's all up on YouTube now if you want to look look it up. But um, his thesis in 2012 was that China, China is actually running against the clock, that there's this huge question for Chinese civilization, kind of will it get old before it gets rich? 
will get rich enough to support its aging population before it's too old to get rich, rich anymore. And, you know, it, it was looking like a photo finish, but there's been this um, mood coming out of China for, for a decade now. All their elite want to get their money out of the country. You can go to the east coast of the U.S. or the east, sorry, the west coast of the U.S. or the west coast of Canada. And the prices of absolutely everything are insane because, because Chinese investors are trying to bring out as much money as they possibly can and get it anywhere but China. Because fundamentally, everyone in China is holding their breath in this regard. Uh, China's saving rate, rate, which you think is a good thing, but it's also kind of kind of said something about society, their society. Their saving rate is the highest in the world. And the question is. Well, what are they saving for? Because education isn't that insane, insanely expensive in China. It's nothing like it is in the U.S. Uh, and they have only one ch- child each for the most part. What are they going to do with all the savings? Like, what's the big expense they see see coming? And the largely, it's it's retirement and and social decline. Uh, lots of Chinese save something like like 50, 70% of their after-tax income, which is unthinkable to us. It does. But um, the, the Chinese, uh, what they'll do with these savings, and this is, is they'll immediately invest it. So, so they don't trust the, um, the stock market by and large. They don't trust the bond market by and large, which if you had to deal with the Chinese stock market or bond market, you probably wouldn't trust it either. So what has been the thing forever for the Chinese to do is to pour it all into real estate. Uh, there are lots of cases of of Chinese family families that are much lower income than you or I am, and I've I'm remarkably low in income. They're they'll own three, four condos and they're all all mortgaged to the hilt or they'll They'll mortgage their first condo to buy a condo for their one child because they need that for marriage. But a big part of it is just that's what they do with their savings is pour it into real estate. State buy second and third condos in other cities they never even intend tend to visit because that's a that's perceived as a safe place to store the, store their money. China has never had a housing housing market could collapse or hasn't until now. And and eventually, declining population meets massively expanding expanding housing market. Something has to give at at some point. It looks like it might have already with the um, Evergrande collapse and the rolling fallout from that. It's very hard to get a feel for this from outside China. But um, yeah, there's this huge thing of did China's savings just just go kaput? And it's very hard, hard to judge. And and kind of the fact that you even ask the question that you have this expanding, growing e- economy, this economy that's supposed to overtake the U.S., that's supposed to be the economy of the 21st century, and you're thinking of their savings, and it's all tied up in real estate, something that isn't producing anything, that isn't productive, that isn't like a that isn't going into companies to to produce new factories or new equipment or hire new 
new people. It isn't going into new capital investments. Investments. It just sitting in in real estate that betrays a huge question of trust in the country and kind of what's what's believed there. That you know, when Apple goes to China and has to build a factory, Apple has to supply its own money to build a factory. There aren't local investments keen to jump on what would look look like a sure thing from their perspective, this foreign company that's going to relocate their supply chain over there. So so China, of course, there's kind of always the divide. Um, governments don't like to acknowledge it, but there's a divide between the country and the government. You know, a country can do very, very poorly, poorly and suffer greatly. And the government just gets stronger and more powerful. Think of the Soviet Union in the 30s or 40s, where um, the Russian people have never suffered as much as they s- suffered them. And at the end of it, the Soviet government was a world superpower. Power. Likewise, you know, I think most people looking at the future of the U.S. don't see much of a future for the U.S. government that it seems sclerotic and declining. But um, by by and large, you look at the actual state of the U.S., its creativity, its population growth, its ability to attract the right to kind of immigrant, uh, the fact that pretty much no matter what else happens to the world, uh, all of the U.S.'s supply lines are contained within North America, so long as the Canadians and Mexicans don't rebel and go, go to war against them. America's internal economy is very strong. Basically, my prediction would be that anything could happen to the U.S. government, but the U.S. would would mosey on on its own, own happy and healthy, regardless whether it would be united or not. Not uh, uh, divided states of America would probably be just as economically powerful as the U.S. currently is, perhaps more so. More so, China. You look at the country and. There's this horrible de- decline to it. There's this, the population has suffered so much already, and and they're looking to shrink so much. Um, the environmental contamination in terms of air quality. Um, I've known people who have gone over and spent six, eight months in China and come back with horrifying, life-altering health problems because the city they were in had the air was just that awful, and people are living there from birth. Earth. China, there's so much, there's a ton of ruin in that country, a ton of questions of of what is sustainable, what's not. Um, and that's before even getting into their ethnic minorities like the Uyghurs or, or Tibetans. But but China is it's a communist country, as rough as it can be for the population, that doesn't guarantee that the government will decline or go down like it could be it could be that the chinese economy declines for the next two decades and the ccp becomes stronger for it the exact same way the soviet union you know was killing off was directly or indirectly responsible for almost a million deaths deaths a year if you want to count the um, the treaty stalin's treaty with hitler and the fallout from that 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 it could suffer that much and come out the first country to to send a satellite to space. So 
so China, I, I'd like to think that that all this mismanagement, all that's been inflicted on the Chinese people, that that would inevitably stop uh, a government like the CCP from becoming becoming a superpower. But history has shown us that that the country and the government are that disentangled. Yeah, yeah, I think you <clears throat> make a really good point about um, the fact that, you know, we, we can maybe have this linear vision, um, maybe a little bit lulled by the idea of, of you know, what, uh, what populism might mean, what democracy means, uh, how people react to political change. Um, it's not linear at all if you look at history. And uh, I think... Uh, there is a lot of gas in the tank for the U.S. I think that's a really that's a really good point as well, um, especially if you compare it to, to to everywhere else because the whole world is in decline and the whole world has this problem of, of fertility. There's a demographic crisis. I mean, you know, I'm I'm in Eastern Europe and I mean the demographic crisis here is very acute because not only are we <clears throat> are we not having kids anymore. And maybe we have slightly more kids than Western Europe, but not, not by a, a, a big margin. Uh, but we're bleeding young people to the West. So, I mean, we're essentially, essentially the, the lifeline, the IV drip into, into Western Europe, into America as well. Um, and this cannot continue uh, for very long. And, you know, this is not a positive trend. It's not like, oh, you know, Europe will be fine. No, nowhere will be fine. And I feel like still U.S. will be finer than other places because of all the factors you listed. Um, there's a lot of ruin in the U.S. And I feel like we we barely scratched the surface, uh, especially compared to other places. Yeah. Um, Eastern Europe, it's Europe in general. It's interesting. Um, the American empire, if you want to model it, I always think of it as kind of a two-way empire that's shaped kind of like an hourglass. And of course, right at the center connecting the two sides are the American elite. But America's internal empire, kind of the empire that was built up through the 19th century, uh, the expansion west, the purchase of Alaska, the capture of uh, Hawaii, all that high imperial empire that's actually U.S. territory on the map. Uh that's one side of the hourglass. And then the other side of the hourglass that really only interacts with it through the American elite is all the territory the America captured during World War II. So, so Europe, um, East, Eastern Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall, all these, all these satellites that are, are part of the international community, which are U.S. client sp- states or places the U.S. conquered during World World War II, the idea that Germany is somehow an equal partner in the international community that was set up to contain and prevent it from ever rising to power, power again is laughable. But um, the interesting thing is, it seems that um, the American elite's cultural power is way stronger in, in the external empire, the international community, than it is internally. So um, if you look at the its mimetic power, like um, what a Democrat would say they believe in internationally or what are the principles of good governance or what, what should be the goal in terms of population. In Europe, every one of those things has been wholly adopted and it's very hard to find a party that would disagree with it or certainly disagree with it substantially. Uh, in the U.S., uh, 
it it's facing constant resistance. It's kind of ironic. The the American left will say, oh, I wish we could be more European, by which they mean more subservient to the American left. Left, But um, yeah. the so you look at the U.S. memes demographics and the U.S. actually of all the Western nations has some of the best demographics in terms of of fertility. Um, I can't recall if they're still above replacement rate, but they're closer than almost any anyone else. And if, if you look at the immigrants that are being brought in, you know, as much as Americans complain about um, illegal immigrants and stuff, Catholics from Central America, America and Mexico are um, vastly more compatible with the, the U.S. than Muslims from North North Africa or Central Central Africa. So the U.S. in terms of demographics is doing shockingly well. And ironically, it's because it's the place where the U.S. elite have hold some of the least sway that the institutions that were set up to contain them are still still somewhat powerful. Uh, I have no idea if this rings true for someone kind of living outside the North American bubble. Obviously, I'm in Canada. I'm on I'm a few hundred kilometers from the U.S. U.S. border. I have friends from the U.S. come up for day trips. But does this ring to, true to the European experience? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know, you've you've put it very well. It's uh, the the alignment with uh, with the, the the core of the left in the U.S. is is extremely strong here. And it's just a, a, a status game because, in a, in a way, the the status lines here are very, um, are, are much more simplified. So essentially, um, what 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 the the uh, American left puts out is kind of an elegant anti-Americanism because it's still cool here to not like the U.S., which by that I mean the essentially the the caricaturized version of the U.S. that the American left promotes. You know the you know, the kind of Michael Moore type, uh, you know, uh, racist heartlander and, uh, you know, whatever deliverance style people. Yeah, that I hate America, the especially the type that resists the American elite. Exactly, exactly. So in a way, it's kind of couched in anti-Americanism, but it is the most American thing ever. Um, and it's kind of, yeah, it it, it, it it's, uh, has its own kind of... Um, a negation built in, so people don't realize that they they're completely subjugated to to the core American ideals. Because what they get is like, oh, you know, look, I'm I'm following these brave warriors, these brave um, people fighting the system in America, and the system's portrayed as being, you know, I don't know, Bible thumping, you know, the, the the parents from Footloose. Like this is these people don't actually exist in that way. Um, but they exist as a foil for um, the, you know, the the actual American hegemony, and it's, it really is an, a very effective thing because um, it, yeah, it's it's very uh, complementary, and it also kind of sets up the the European to not be kind of um, hit in their own ego. It's um, you know, you're you're not following the U.S. You're just uh, you're following the people resisting the U.S. So obviously, this is this is a good thing to do. Uh, but you know the 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 secondary layer to this, where in the U.S. you actually have, like you said, some some form of real competition, 
that's not as visible here. Though I think people are starting to 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 pick that up as well. I mean, the, the internet is very hard to to control in that way. It's kind of a, a bit of a wild card. So, yeah, it's it's all on the table now. I I wonder personally exactly how how fast things can move with uh, with this new system that we have. Yeah, no, in Canada, it's um, quite an interesting dynamic because, of course, Canada had a imperial colonial culture, culture vastly longer than everywhere else, but our imperial colonial culture was for the British. So you go to classic Canadian historical sites and they won't fly the, the, the modern Canadian flag, which came out in the 60s. They'll fly the old red, red ensign that... Um, and a lot of our provinces still have a similar flag with the Union Jack and the red and then a coat of arms that kind of notes which one you are. But um, but so you'll go around to all these ca- classic Canadian historical sites and all these questions that are raised now by our cultural elite, like, oh, does Canada have an identity? What does it mean to be Canadian? Blah, 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 blah. Of course, would just be in unthinkable to any of these figures living at this time because there was very much an obvious cultural identity which was was kind of Britishness on the on the frontier so it was a mix of um, kind of British high imperialism and kind of a settler colonial cowboy c- culture and you see this intersect in interesting ways and you'll have prominent Canadians who who were kind of great champions of of empire who built great things, built built European style castles to themselves. If you're ever in Toronto, um, visit Castle Loma. Um, was just there there a few days ago. Um, this great entre- entrepreneur of his time, the man who electrified Toronto, tried to build this great capital and bank castle on on a hill very close to downtown, and almost bankrupted him and bankrupted himself doing it. But um, he was also the head of one of the local regiments that's very stored, the commanding officer, sir, because Canada was entirely a militia culture. So so he, so he, there's all these stories of him having this castle and then bringing his troops there to, to train and stuff on his, his yard or, um, or there'd be some event happening and he'd pay out of his own pocket to send 600 men there from his unit and another massive amount of out of pocket to have them trained up so they perform very well at this international competition one whatnot or um actually a cousin of his by marriage was one of the greatest authors of the 1910s 1920s wrote wrote uh stephen leacock wrote all these great great kind of humorous high imperial stories um he's still in the school curriculum in India, he's not in the cur- school curriculum in Canada, but every English, but every Indian school child reads his humorous short stories about small town Canada, because he was a figure on a par with um, Rudyard Kipling. So, so Canada has this had this intense, tense, very patriotic, nationalistic culture, very distinctive to the region. Like you'll find Canadian. British imperial artifacts and they don't actually look like British imperial artifacts because they're way overdone. Like because they were colonials, they had to, they always played it up intensely. So at the same time, anyone in Britain would think, Oh, that's a gauche. That's a parody. Like no one would ever create 
create something like that. They did in Canada, so it's like uh, the South Park representation of any time something British happens, they move it to Canada. And it's bizarre and like and like a parody of British Britishness or like the Wizard of Oz. That's actually a style that existed. You'll you'll see it in like great posters of Queen Queen Victoria looking down on you judgmentally and stuff. All all these bizarre artifacts and was entirely unique. Unique. And of course, the 60s happens, um, the British Empire falls, and immediately, immediately, uh, the government scratches all of that, switches the flag even to the new Canadian, the current Canadian flag. It's basically a corporate logo. Like it's actually symbolically meaningless. The maple leaf doesn't even grow in the majority of the country, just like a small section of Ontario and Quebec. And and pretty much the culture disappeared. Now, obviously, there's a huge culture clash with that because a third of Canada is French, and you had this massive cultural tension that erupted in in terrorism and nationalist movements in the 70s. Uh, was never as bad as North Ireland or anything like that, but lots of mailboxes blew up, and the referendum, uh, the 80... 84 referendum i believe was like 44 56 and then the 1995 referendum was um 49.56 to 50 point point um four five or something something like that and was shockingly close one of the great tragedies of canadian life that the country didn't didn't split apart we might have had two coherent countries instead of one incoherent one but um, but kind of the prime prime example of a c- country entirely having its culture disappeared and appeared in favor of kind of internationalized nothing. And now, of course, uh, you'll get figures like like Trudeau or members of his cabinet arguing Canada doesn't have a culture. Diversity is our culture, which, of course, they don't mean the actual cultural diversity that exists in the country prior to 19. 19- they don't mean any of the the unique cultural output that exists that existed then. They mean mean their specific ideal of diversity, which is people of all all races, all religions, all all creeds, all sexuality coming together and saying the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like Canada is one of the the purest forms of the the new airport lounge style country. Um, definitely a, very ahead of its time, um, but we are coming up on time. And I want to ask you the, the last question that I ask everyone. Um, do you have any sort of um, influence or, or recommended thinker, could be a writer, could be any sort of character that you think is um, maybe underrated? doesn't have to be a very obscure type of character, but someone who's been influential in, in your thinking and you think you know, people would get something out of. Uh, I'd, I'd strongly recommend the humor of Stephen Leacock. Um, uh, I just visited his museum a bit ago. I often characterize him as the first hipster. I, um, I once read a section of his short story to a friend of mine and being like, isn't this interesting? And they're like, Oh, that's so tired. 2015 called. They want, they want their humor back. And I'm like, well, that was written in 1910. That um, <laughs> that he's 
he's kind of internally of the moment, internally of of like a past that's way beyond on him. Um, this very distinctive style of Canadian Canadian humor that um, if you actually trace the lineage, um, all of hipsterdom originates in Toronto and Montreal. Like it's biographic there back into the nineties and eighties, whereas like Brooklyn or anywhere else it, it's like, Oh, this was a trend that started in the two thousands. Whereas like you can actually name the core figures of like, Oh yes, these people founded vice magazine in 1991 in Montreal, or these people were doing this or so-and-so was a prominent, was a prominent band member in 1998. And her dad was a poet who had a similar style. Style. And basically, if you trace it all back through these two veins, it all kind of terminates that, like, that, well, the first person to express that type of of humor in that very distinctive way, distinctive and awkward way, was Stephen Leacock. And, of course, everyone's forgotten about, about him entirely, but um, he was once probably amongst the most prominent writers in the British Empire. He was a dear friend of... Um, of um uh what's his name head on the tip of my tongue um rudyard kipling uh he had correspondence with f scott's Fitzgerald and hemingway like was one of the major writers of his era and is entirely forgotten because the canadian government has chosen to kind of disappear him yeah that's a excellent recommendation he hasn't mentioned i didn't know anything about that you know that's uh that's that's great. Uh, if oh, you want you. to sample him, um, the National Film mm-hmm. Board did a great production of his um, short story "My Financial Career," which is on YouTube, and it's about five minutes. It's the entire short story, and it's you will watch and you'll be like, "Wow, that's the most Canadian thing I've ever seen." <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll I'll look it up and I'll I'll put it in the, in the show notes. That sounds excellent, Canadian. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for for coming on. This has been really lovely. Um, I want to point people again towards your your Twitter. Um, what what's your Twitter handle? Uh, at from Kulak. Uh, most people will know me as Cat Girl Kulak, though, and. Um... My blog is Anarchonomicon at Substack. You can also find that through my Twitter. And um, also check out the Bailey podcast hosted on Substack. And I believe it's still up on SoundCloud, probably everywhere you get podcasts from. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, We will. I'll put those in the show notes as well. And yeah, thank you again for coming on. Thank you so much, Alex. You have a great one. If you'd like to support my work and access more content, please consider subscribing through Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. See you next week.